Amen. All right, we're there in Galatians chapter number four. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we are making our way through the book of Galatians. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, through a study in the book of Galatians. And uh, of course, every, every Wednesday night, uh, as we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, they're all Bible studies, but this is really uh, a, a Bible study in the sense that the Apostle Paul is kind of dealing with some heavy things here, some, some deep things, and it, it's very much uh, theological uh, teaching. And uh, tonight we find ourselves here in chapter number four, and we're going to go through the first seven verses of this chapter tonight. We're going to cover these seven verses uh, thoroughly. Uh, but just to, to kind of remind you, one of the themes of the book of Galatians, and, and I've been talking to you about the different themes of Galatians. There's four different themes, but uh, last week and this week, we've kind of been stuck on, on one theme, uh, or I should say the Apostle Paul has been on one theme, uh, but he's been on the theme of the Judaizers. And if you remember, there are those that have came from Jerusalem to Galatia, and they are trying to teach that in order to be a Christian, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but you must also submit yourself under the uh, Mosaic law and bring yourself under the covenant of, of the law. And they're saying that you, can't, you must keep the Mosaic law in order to be a Christian. This is what the Apostle Paul is fighting against, and this is what much of the book of Galatians is about. If you remember, last week we went through uh, the last part there of chapter 3, and we went through the different covenants that the Apostle Paul was explaining to the Galatians about the different covenants and how they worked together. This week, uh, the Apostle Paul continues that. So, of course, we're in a new chapter, chapter 4, but the context continues. And when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he wrote it as a letter. So, um, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were added later on. So, it's not like the Apostle Paul got to the end of what we call chapter 3 and said, all right, well, that's chapter 3, and then Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that um, this is him just speaking to them, and which is why the context continues. And what I want you to understand is that what we're going to see in the next seven verses here is that he's continuing to attack these Judaizers, and he's continuing with this idea of the covenant. And what Paul is doing in the next seven verses is he's explaining to them why it is that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And if you remember, we've been talking about, last week we talked about the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and, and how they interact and, and, and what they, that means to us. But now Paul is bringing in this idea of the new covenant, the new testament. The reason it's called the new testament is because we've entered into a new covenant. And Paul is contrasting and comparing these two covenants and he's explaining to the Galatian believers that the new is better than the old. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. That's what we're going to see in these seven verses. And uh, like I said, it'll be very much a Bible study. I do encourage you to take notes on the back of your course a week. There's a place for you to take notes. And if you're going to take notes, let me just go ahead and give you, I've been doing this lately, let me give you the three points kind of up front so you can have them. We're going to look at, uh, at, at seven verses tonight, Galatians 1, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And you can... Divide these verses into these three sections. The first thing we see is an illustration, and that's going to be in verses 1 through 2. And then the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul gives us an illustration in verses 1 through 2. And then the Apostle Paul gives us the interpretation in verses 3 to, to 5. So he gives us an illustration in verses 1 through 2. Then he gives us the interpretation of the illustration in verses 3 to 5. And then the Apostle Paul ends with an application in verses 5 through 7. You could say verses 1 through 2 are an illustration. Verses 3 through the first part of verse 5 is the interpretation. And then the second part of verse 5 to verse 7 is the application. So we'll begin here with this illustration. And it is an illustration that Paul gives regarding an heir. Notice what he says there in verse 1. He says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. So, Apostle Paul begins with this illustration. He's using an example. And the example is that of an heir. The idea that there is someone, a son, who has a father that maybe is a king or some sort of a ruler, some sort of a rich individual. And this young child is going to be the one who inherits 
that kingdom or inherits all of that wealth. This young child is the heir. And what Paul is teaching us in this illustration, he is talking about this heir when he is a child, all right? So the idea is that there's some king with a kingdom, with wealth, and he has a son, and that son is an heir. That son is going to grow up one day to take the place of his father. He's going to take the king, uh, the kingdom. He's going to take the riches. He'll become the king. But Paul is talking about when that heir is a child. And what he is teaching here in verse 1 is that the heir, when he is a child, is Lord of all because he will inherit the kingdom. That's what he said. Look at verse 1 again. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. So he's saying, look, the heir, when he's a child, he's Lord of all. Because of the fact that he's going to grow up to take the kingdom, he will be Lord of all. However, while he's a child, the heir, while he's a child, is not much different than a servant. And what he's saying is that he's not much different in his treatment than a servant would be treated. Look at it again, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, right, the one who is Lord of all at the end of the verse, that the heir, as long as he is a child, so while he is a child, before he is a man, before he is an adult, as long as he is a child, he says, differeth nothing from a servant. And, and what he's saying is this, that if you were to walk into a kingdom and you were to uh, walk into a palace and there was a king, a man, an adult on the throne and that king had a son and you were to go out into the courtyard and watch the son, he said the son of the king would not look and would not be treated much differently than the sons of the servants, than the son who is a servant. He said though... He is Lord of all. As long as he is a child, he differeth nothing from a servant. Why? Because while he's a child, he's probably going to go to school and be educated like all the other children go to school and get educated. He's probably going to have a time of play, and he's probably going to play with the other servant children, and he's going to play and have fun just like all the other children do. He's probably going to have chores and, and things that he's responsible for just like any other child. So Paul is giving us this illustration. He says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. And let me just go ahead and say this, because this is not what the Apostle Paul is, talk, is preaching about. What I'm about to say is not what, he's not bringing this up to make this application, but while we're here, while, while we're here let me make the application that children, even those who are heirs of big kingdoms, should be made to work. They should, there should be no difference. You say, I'm, I'm, I'm a rich, wealthy person, and my children are going to inherit a lot of wealth. Well, you know, what Paul says is that even though they are an heir, as long as they are children, uh, they should differ nothing from a servant. And you know what? Children, even if they're born into wealthy families, wealthy family or not, young children and, and young people should be taught to work. Lamentations 3.27, you have to turn there. I'll just read this for you. It says, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And you know what? Children should be made to work. Children should be taught to work. Children should be taught. Now, obviously, children should be educated. And obviously, children should play. And, 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 and we understand that. But there also needs to be a time in children's life, and especially young people's lives and teenagers, where they're being taught to work. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Now, let me just say this. Young people should be made to work within the household. They should be made to help carry the, the load and the weight of the household. Because you know what? Children bring a load onto the household. You know, our children in our home... Every day, every day, and honestly, probably multiple times a day, are made to clean and pick up and, 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 and to help, you know, get the house situated. You say, well, why do you do that? Well, part of it is because we want to teach them character, and we want to teach them a work ethic, and we want to teach them, you know, uh, to, to not... Uh, when, when children are young, you know, when they're little, they, they do things like they, they just... 
they, they make messes, they just throw things on the floor. And we've got some younger ones who were helping develop, get that habit out of them. But you know, that's how children are. And in our, home, in our house, we have a joke. When, whenever a child does something like that, you know, they, they get some gift or get some package and they open it up and they just throw everything on the, on the, on the ground and grab whatever they want and, and move on. You know, and we say, hey, hey, you're not, you're not homeless, all right? And, and we'll, we'll joke with them like, that's what the homeless people do. And if you don't like me saying that, go look at where the homeless people are. And I don't understand when you have nothing, why you have so much junk, you know? And it's just like, it's ridiculous. And uh, I mean, and it's, you know, obviously it's getting out of control. And this is, now I'm, I'm on a different tangent now. You can blame Gavin Newsom for this one. But over, I mean, over there by the 99 cent store a couple of weeks ago, they had like a whole living room set. Like, like they found, like someone threw away uh, 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 a table and chairs and then they brought it out of the dumpster and they had it set up like on the grass and it was just a filthy mess and I was thinking to myself like you know th- this look you need to teach your children to clean up and to work so they don't end up like that but um, anyway I'm not sure how we got there but the point is that children should be taught to clean it should be taught to work oh yeah and this is what I'm saying you say why do you get your children to clean clean the house well part of it is to teach them character and integrity but the other part is this because they made the mess. You know, like, it's not my wife and I who are just throwing everything out, you know, just th- p- flinging stuff all over the house. So as they're going through their day, as they're playing, as they're having a good time, every once in a while, they should be made to clean. And if you say, well, I'm very wealthy, and I can afford this, and I can afford that, and they're going to be very wealthy people one day, hey, praise the Lord for that. But you know what? Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant though he be Lord of all. So children should be taught to work. They should be taught to, to work around the house. And let me just say this, because in our type of churches uh, where we're very conservative and we have uh, maybe some large families and we homeschool and, and, and things like that, let me, let me just say this, and this is something that I often try to teach the families, and it's, it's this, that young people should be made to work within the household, but they should not be made to run the household. And this is a balance that I think a lot of uh, homeschooling large families need to make sure that they understand. Your children need to work within your household. They do not need to run your household. You, if you have a lot of kids, God bless you. I'm four large families. Your children need to help with the younger uh, siblings, but they don't need to raise the younger siblings. Uh, so, so we need to be careful that we are allowing children to have time to play and for education and those things, but they also need to work. So here Paul is bringing up, and again, this is not why Paul is saying this. I'm just saying this because we're here. But Paul is just giving us this illustration, and it is this, that the heir, when he is, chi- when he is a child, is Lord of all. He is Lord of all because he will inherit the kingdom. But the heir, while he is a child, is not much different from a servant or should not be very different from a servant in his treatment. He differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. Notice verse number 2. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 2. But, and we're talking about the heir, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. And what Paul is giving us in this illustration is that though the heir is Lord of all, and though he differeth not nothing from a servant, he is under authority, though he is Lord of all. And again, this is just an illustration that Paul is giving. But what he's saying is this. If you've got the, the child, the son of a king, and that son is going to eventually grow up to be a king, great, he's going to inherit the kingdom. But while he is a child, he's not much different than, the, than a servant in the sense that he has chores to do, he has things to do, he goes to school, verse 2, but is under tutors and governors. The word governor there is referring to someone who's in charge of their education and, and taking care of them. A tutor is someone in charge of their education. They are under tutors and governors. So here's what I want you to understand. The heir, when he is a child, is under the authority of tutors and governors. Though he's Lord of all, while he's a child, he's still under somebody's authority, but that same child will grow up one day and then, be, uh, and then he will be the authority of even the people that he was under authority. Does that make sense? 
Now, here's why, here's why Paul is saying this, and, and, and you need to understand, we're not talking about heirs and, and children here. We're talking about covenants. And if you remember, if you go back to Galatians chapter 3, this, this, uh, this idea in verse 2, but it's under tutors and governors, brings us back to the idea of the covenants. Because in Galatians 3 and verse 24, Paul said this, Wherefore the law, referring to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant made with Moses, was our schoolmaster. You see the, the, the phrase there, schoolmaster? Tutor, governors, schoolmasters. These are all talking about the same things. Someone who is a teacher or an authority over a child is the illustration being used here. Wherefore, the law, the covenant of the law, the Mosaic law, that was our schoolmaster. That was our tutor. That was our governor. That was the person who was our authority, is what Paul is saying, when we were a child, to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So we have this illustration. Go back to Galatians chapter 4. What is the illustration? The illustration is that of an heir. What does he teach us? He teaches us that the heir, when he is a child, is Lord of all because he will inherit the kingdom. But though he is Lord of all, while he is a child, he is he differeth not from a servant. He's not much different than a servant in his treatment. And while he is a child, though he be Lord of all, he is under the authority of tutors and governors and a schoolmaster. That's the illustration in verses 1 and 2. Now I want you to notice the interpretation in verses 3 to 5. Paul gives us the illustration, then he says, here's Here's what I'm trying to explain. Here's, here's the example I'm giving. He says in verse 3, even so we, here's the interpretation. So he's saying, look, that was just an example. That was just symbolic. That was just an illustration, and here's the interpretation. You say, who's the interpretation? What is the interpretation? Paul says, it's us. He said, even so we. He said, what, he, what he's saying is this, we are like this heir. And when he's saying we, he's talking about the people of God. And I want you to understand that he is, what he is doing, he's uniting something that maybe sometimes we don't unite in our own minds. And it is this, that there has always been a people of God. In the New Testament, they're called New Testament Christians. In the Old Testament, they might have been called Old Testament believers or Old Testament saints. But there have always been people that have been people who have called upon the name of the Lord who have been saved, and who are considered the people of God. And Paul says, but we, he says, even so we, the people of God, he said, when we were children, he's talking collectively about the people throughout the ages who have been known as the people of God, believers, and and, and those who call upon the name of the Lord, Old Testament, New Testament. He says, even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage. Now, the phrase bondage there is a reference to the law. I don't have the time to develop that for you right now. We'll see that later in the book of Galatians, but you can study that out on your own. He's, he's saying, look, we were, we, he says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage. So he's saying, in the same way that an heir, when he is a child, looks a lot like a servant and is under the authority of a schoolmaster and a governor and a tutor, he says, even so we... When we were children, were in bondage or were under the bondage or the authority of the law. You say, what is he saying? What is he teaching? He's saying this. The Old Testament system, because the covenant of God's people covers two different, the, the, excuse me, the, the, the people of God throughout the ages are covered under two different systems. In the New Testament, we are under the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, they were under the Old Covenant or the Old Testament or the Mosaic Covenant. We learned last week that the Abrahamic Covenant goes, runs all the way through, through the Old Testament, through the Mosaic Covenant, and through the New Covenant because the Abrahamic Covenant is all about Christ. But the People that were God's people in the Old Testament were under the Old Testament system, and the people that are God's people in the New Testament are under the New Testament or the New Covenant system. Both people call upon the name of the Lord. 
We look back on the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon him by faith. They looked forward in faith, believing that the Messiah would come. They did not know the name of Christ, but believing that the Lord would come, and they called upon him for salvation. Both were saved through faith. Both were saved by calling upon the name of the Lord. Both were saved through the Lord Jesus Christ, but under two systems. And here's what Paul is teaching. These people, the ones who were under the Old Testament system, they were under an infantile, immature, adolescent system. He says when they were under the Old Testament system, they were children in bondage. They were like an heir who would eventually become Lord of all, but while he was a child, he differeth not from a servant. They're like a child that looked like they, though they had authority, they looked like they were under authority because they were immature and therefore under governors and tutors and under schoolmasters. What he is saying there in verse 3 is that the Old Testament system was an infantile, immature, adolescent system. That's what he means when he says, even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage. But then I want you to notice the last part of verse 3. He says we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now that word elements there, it's going to come up later in this chapter. We're not going to get to it tonight. I mean, I'm going to show it to you, but we're not going to actually go through it tonight. We'll go through it next week. But here he says that, he says we were like that heir when we were children because we were in bondage under the elements of the world. The word element or elements is defined as a component or a, uh, 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 a constituent of a whole or a part of a whole. The word element is a component or a part of a whole. And here's what Paul is saying. When we were children under bondage, we were under the elements or he says the, the, the idea is that we were under something partly. We were under a component of something that made a whole. We were under a part of something that belonged to something more complete. Look at verse 9, uh, just real quickly. Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. He says, but now, we're, we're not going to get to verse 9 tonight. We'll do it next week, but I just want you to see the word. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, he said, how turn ye again unto the weak and beggarly. The word beggarly means poor means under-resourced. It's where we get, uh, like we would say, someone who's a beggar. He says, you're turning again to the weak and beggarly elements, the weak and beggarly components, the, the big, weak and be uh, 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 beggarly parts that make up the whole. Now, why am I making a big deal about this? And, 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 and I want you to understand this. What Paul is teaching us in this interpretation is that the Old Testament system was an infantile, immature, adolescent system. It was God's people as children. And because of that, the Old Testament system was only a part, was only a, an element, was only a component of a bigger system. Because what today what the Zionists like to teach is that the Old Testament that was like, that was plan A. That was God's perfect will. But then the Jews messed it up. So then God had to turn like plan B. So the Gentiles are like, you know, the redheaded stepchildren. And, and God didn't really want us, but I mean, they, they, the Jews killed a son. So he's just like, fine, I'll just go over to these people. So they, they act like, like they, it was all about the Jews. It's always been about the Jews. But because the Jews messed up, God has them on timeout. And now he's just kind of dealing with the Gentiles. But what Paul is saying is this. No, he says the opposite. He says, in fact, the Old Testament system, he said that was just the system of God's people as, as an infantile system. He says it was not complete yet. It was not done yet. It was just one component, one part, one element of a much bigger system, something that had not yet fully been developed. He said it had not yet come into maturity. He says the Old Testament system is like looking at a man who's just a child. There's still more that needs to be done. There's still more growth. And he says that happened, that growth and completion happened with the New Testament. But he says the Old Testament system was only a part 
It was an element. It was a component of a bigger system. Now, let me just quickly answer this question because somebody's going to ask it and let me go ahead and answer it. The reason that he says under the elements of the world, and in verse 9 he says, how turn ye to the weak and beggarly elements, is because Paul is actually talking about two different things, but he's uniting them because he says, and he's saying they're so similar. And, and what he's saying is this. He's, and we're going to get to this next week, but he's telling the Galatians that they got saved out of idolatry. We're going to see that next week. And he's telling them, you going back to the Old Testament, to the Mosaic law, you allowing the Judaizers to take you back to the Old Testament covenant, he said, it's like you going back to worshiping false idols and idolatry. You say, well, why would Paul make that connection? Why would he put, put those things together? And, and here's the reason why. Because of the fact that both of those are portions of something that's not complete. The Old Testament was not complete until Christ came, until the New Testament, the New Covenant. So, well, how can he equate that to heathen people and idolatry? And, and the reason for that is this, because God has revealed himself. The elements of the world is incomplete like the Old Testament because God has revealed himself through natural ways and through supernatural ways. God has revealed himself through creation, and God has revealed himself through conscience. God has revealed himself to mankind through the creation of the, of the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God, the Bible says. And, he's and he has also revealed himself through the conscience that is in the heart of every man. Every man and, and woman and child has put in them a conscience that comes from God that tells them, hey, this is right and this is wrong and don't do that and don't go there. And that's how God reveals himself. But here's what you need to understand. That's incomplete. That's not enough. That will get you to believe that there is a deity. That'll get you to believe that there is a God, but it's not going to get you to the true God necessarily. Why? And look, that's the reason why throughout history, every people in this world have always believed in some sort of a deity. Atheism, you say, well, well there's people that don't believe in God. No one naturally comes, you have to go to school and be taught that. You have to go to school and be convinced out of because the natural tendency is to believe that there is a God. Why? Because God has revealed himself through creation and through conscience. But that's just part of the equation. That only gets you halfway there. The other part is that God revealed himself specifically and supernaturally through his son and through the word of God. It is the word of God that teaches us salvation. It is the word of God that teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the word of God that completes the deal. And what Paul is saying, because he's a very smart man, he's using these illustrations and saying, the, us as God's people rejecting the New Testament and going back to the Old Testament to something that was only part of what uh, the full thing is like you going back to your idols. It's like you going back to worshiping God based solely off creation and conscience. It's a good start, he says, but it's not the point, and it's not the end. So he says the Old Testament system was an infantile, immature, adolescent system. The Old Testament system was only a part, was only a component, was only an element of a bigger system. Go to Colossians chapter 2, just real quickly, if you would. You're there in, in Galatians, you're going to go past Ephesians, past Philippians, into Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Let me just give you some verses to prove this to you. The Old Testament system was incomplete, is what Paul is trying to say. It was only part, it was only a part of a whole. And this is what the Bible teaches throughout. Colossians chapter 2, and look at verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drinks, or in respect of an holy day, or of a new moon, or of Sabbath days. We're going to come back to Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter 2 next time. Uh, we're in the book of Galatians, and we're going to talk about this verse a little more in depth. But here he's talking about the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law. These are the things, the ordinances that have been done away, that no longer apply in the New Testament. And Paul says to the Colossians, let no man therefore judge you. Don't let anybody tell you, hey, 
you need to be doing these things and judge you because you're not doing them in meats or in drinks or in respect of a holy day or of a new moon or of the Sabbath days. Notice what he says in verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, I want you to understand that verse. He says, the meats and the drinks and the holy days and the new moon and the Sabbath. And we're going to come back to this next week. So next week when we're at it, you'll have to just be interested again, even though I'm giving you the answers right now, okay? He says, these things, these ceremonial things were only a shadow. They were just part of something that was still to come. They were not the thing. They were a shadow of the thing. You say, well, what was the thing? Well, think about a shadow. I don't know if I have a shadow here behind me, but a shadow is cast. If, if, is there a shadow behind I can't tell. I'm like Peter Pan here. There's a shadow behind me that I'm fighting with, right? And a shadow is cast by a body. Well, you say, well, what was the, what was the shadow of the meats and drinks and holy days and new moons and Sabbath days? Notice verse 17, which were a shadow of things to come, but the body... The body casting the shadow is Christ, is of Christ. These were a shadow of things that symbolized it was just part. It wasn't complete. It wasn't whole. They were just symbolic of what the real thing which was to come, which was Christ. Go to Hebrews chapter 8. Let me give you other examples. Hebrews chapter 8. You're there in Colossians. You, after Colossians, you have 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 8. Hebrews 8. Look at verse 5. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Do me a favor, when you get to Hebrews, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it and I'd like you to be able to get to it quickly. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Notice what the Bible says. Who serve unto the example and shadow... It's talking about the Old Testament covenant. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, foresee, saith he, that thou, uh, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. I want you to notice that when Moses was told, to build a tabernacle and build a table of showbread and the Ark of the Covenant and the, 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 the candlesticks and all those things that they built in the tabernacle, he said those were actually just patterned after something that he was shown in heaven. He said those were just an example and a shadow of heavenly things. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10, just flip over a couple of chapters. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law... What is that? The Mosaic Covenant. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. Notice what it says. And not the very image of the things. The Old Testament was just a shadow, was just a figure of what was to come, but they were not the actual image of the thing. He says, and not the very image of the thing. He says, can never with those sacrifices. You say, well, why was the Old Testament partial? Here's why. Because the Old Testament can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The word perfect means complete or whole. Here's what he says. The Old Testament on its own could never have fulfilled and completed anything. He said those sacrifices which they offered year by year. He said they offered them every year continually, but they never could make the comers there unto perfect. And then he says in verse 2, he says, because if they could, he says, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. He said, if they could have made the comers there too perfect, then, then we would still be in the Old Testament. what he's saying. Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. So here's the idea. And what Paul is teaching us, and I realize that maybe this is uh, not the most interesting thing to some of you, but this is very important doctrinally. Go, go back to Galatians chapter 4. Keep your place in, in, in Hebrews. The idea is this, that the Old Testament system was an infantile, immature, adolescent system. It was God's people as children. 
And because it was God's people as children, it was like an heir who will eventually be uh, the, the Lord of all. But while he's a child, he looks a lot like a servant. And he looks even more like a servant when you consider the fact that he's under the authority of tutors and governors and a schoolmaster. He said, that's what we were like, Paul says, God's people under the Old Testament covenant. He says, the Old Testament system was only a part or an element or a component of a bigger thing. Go back to Galatians chapter 4. Keep your place in Hebrews, if you would. Look at verse 2 again. But is under tutors and governors, notice this, until. You see the word until there? Until the time appointed of the Father. See, not only was the Old Testament system an infantile, immature, adolescent system, not only was the Old Testament system an incomplete system, only a part or an element or a component of a bigger system, but also the Old Testament system had an expiration date. It, it, it was only for a temporary time. It was only for a certain amount of time, and then it was already planned to be done away with. Look at it again, verse 2. But it's under tutors and governors. How long are you under tutors and governors? How long are you under the law? Until the time appointed of the Father. And keep in mind, this is where people get confused. The law is referring to the Mosaic covenant. It's not referring to thou shalt not kill. Because people like to say, well, yeah, Jesus came, so now we can do whatever we want. That's, you don't get, the Bible does not say that. It never says you can commit adultery and kill and steal and whatever. The law is a reference to the Mosaic law, the covenant that God made with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. Yes, that includes the laws of the land of the nation of Israel. We understand that. But that's not, it's the ritualistic, ceremonial priesthood. That's what we're referring to when he's talking about bringing yourself back to that bondage and believing that you have to keep the sacrifices and all those things in order to be saved. He says, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. What was that time? Look at verse 4, Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness, I love, I love this verse. I just love the way the King James Bible reads. But when the fullness of the time was come, that's why I I, I like singing that song, at the right time, at the best time, he came. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman. What does that mean? That God became flesh, made of a woman. Notice, made under the law. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came under the Old Testament covenant. When Jesus came, they circumcised him eight days later. They were doing all sorts of sacrifices and all sorts of things. He's going to the temple. He's going to Jerusalem uh, for Passover. Why? Because he was under, he was made of a woman, made under the law. He was under the Old Testament covenant, and he fulfilled it perfectly. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why did he send him? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. See, the Old Testament system was only for a certain amount of time. It had an expiration date. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Let's look at it from Hebrews real quickly. Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verse 8. Hebrews 9, 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Remember, the holiest of all is a reference to where God dwells. Because in the tabernacle, you had the holy place and then the the holy of holies or the holiest of uh, of all or the most holy place, that second chamber where the Ark of the Covenant rested, where the, the, which represented the presence of God. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. It was not yet made clear. It was not yet seen. While it was not yet seen forever, no, just for a while, while as, as the first tabernacle was yet standing. I want you to notice all the words there that have to do with time. He says, He says that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. It was not clearly seen or understood for a while. For what while? While as the first tabernacle was yet standing, verse 9, which was a figure, which was symbolic, 
which was a shadow for the time then present, just for that time in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices. These are the offerings, notice, that could not make him that did the service perfect. Notice how consistent the Bible is. They could not get the job done. The sacrifices of bulls could not get the job done. The sacrifices of lambs could not get the job done. Those were all just a shadow and a figure and an image. That lamb being slain was just picturing the fact that in the fullness of time, God would send forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, and that son would be called the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. Those were just pictures of things to come. Notice verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. Verse 10, which stood only in, doesn't this sound like Colossians 2, meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them, notice this word, until. It had an expiration date. Until the time of Reformation. And no, that is not referring to Martin Luther. You say, well, what's the time of Reformation? Notice the Bible's its own, uh, its own commentary, verse 11. But Christ being come. Isn't it interesting that the Bible calls the time that Christ being come, they call it the time of Reformation? Why does it call it that? Well, why do we call Martin Luther and John Calvin and all the stuff they did Reformation? Because well, they, were, they were trying to reform the Catholic Church. They were trying to correct faults within the Catholic Church. Well, what did Jesus do? He came and he corrected the Old Testament. Because remember, there was a fault with the Old Testament, not with the Testament, but the fault was with the people. And he came and reformed it and created a new thing called the new covenant. Notice again verse 11, or last part of verse 10, until the time of reformation, but Christ being come, and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, a greater and more complete tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Once for all. He died for all. We don't need to keep sacrificing a lamb. We don't need to keep taking communion. We don't need to do anything. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you're saved once for all. He says, so the interpretation. Go back to Galatians, if you would. Galatians chapter 4. The illustration was the heir. When he is a child, he is Lord of all. Though while he is a child, he doesn't differ from the servants because he's under the authority of tutors and governors and a schoolmaster. The interpretation is that God's people under the Old Testament were under this infantile child, this immature adolescent system. The Old Testament system was only partial. It was just a shadow of what was to come of a bigger, better system. And the Old Testament system was for a certain amount of time. It had an expiration date until the time of Reformation, but Christ being come and high priest was that time of of Reformation. So let me quickly give you number three, an application. And it's not my application, although I like to give applications in sermons, but this is actually Paul's application. And his application from his interpretation derived from the illustration is this. That we are the children and the heirs. And the application is this. I'll just try to give it to you succinctly. And it's this, that it's better to be the heir as an adult than to be the heir as a child. He's saying, look, an heir, when he's a child, is lord of all. But they don't feel like lord of all. They're not treated like Lord of all. They don't act like Lord of all. In fact, they kind of look like they're a servant, and they look like they're under this bondage of a tutor and a schoolmaster. He said, but that same heir grows up, and when he is Lord of all, he says it's better to be the heir being Lord of all. And what he's trying to tell the Galatians is this. We are under the New Testament covenant, and he's trying to explain to them the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. 
The new covenant is better than the old covenant, and he's bringing out this idea. Why are you trying to go back to the old covenant? He says, we are the adult heirs in this illustration, and it is better. See, you say, well, why is it better? Paul would say, because the New Testament covenant is more intimate than the Old Testament covenant. Say, what do you mean? Well, look at Galatians 4 and verse 5. Remember verse 5, in verse 4 we saw, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Why do you do that? Here's why. That we might receive the adoption of sons. Notice what he says. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That word Abba is an intimate it's an intimate way of, of, of saying father. That, that word Abba is brought up there because it, it, it's, a, it's a way. And, and this is, it, it's not exactly like this. And I understand, I'm going to say this. Somebody's going to email me and say, you know, whatever. But it, the, 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 the illustration is not exact, but, but just to kind of give you an idea. It's, it's like saying daddy versus saying father. Now, a son might go, you know, he's in trouble and, and dad calls it, yes, father, you know. But when, when you say dad or daddy, it's, it's intimate. And, and what Paul is saying is that God sent forth his son made of a woman made uh, uh, under the law to redeem them that were under the law. He says to redeem them that were under the law, under the schoolmasters, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit in his son. By, by the way, one of the benefits of the new covenant versus the old covenant is that we get the Holy Spirit to dwell us. Amen. Into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore God, uh, wherefore thou art no more. Notice what he says. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, he says, then an heir of God through Christ. And I don't really have time to develop this. I've got all these notes, but I'm, I'm, I'm already out of time. But let me just kind of help you understand this. God is referred to as God the Father throughout the whole Bible. But in the Old Testament, that term of God the Father is kind of separated. If you study references to God being referred to as the Father in the Old Testament, you'll notice that it's often in reference to like, he's the Father of the nation of Israel, or he's the Father of of the people of God in general. And I'm not minimizing that. That is all true. But in the New Testament, the relationship between individuals becomes more intimate with God the Father. In the New Testament, Jesus says and Jesus teaches us that you and I can come to God the Father and say, Our Father, which art in heaven. Paul says that we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. And and even here in Galatians chapter 1, if you go back to chapter 1 just real quickly, Paul it's like he knew he was going to get to this point, and he highlights it early in the chapter. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither my men, but by Jesus Christ. Notice, and God, the Father. He emphasizes this idea that God is our Father. Look at verse 3. Grace be unto you and peace from God the Father. Look at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. The New Testament is more intimate than the Old Testament. You don't have to turn here, but in Romans 8.15, the Bible says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The point that Paul is making is this, that the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. And, And Hebrew says that as well. And he says there's lots of reasons for it, but the reason that Paul is bringing up is this, the New Testament is more intimate. You say, how can that be? Here's why. In the, Old, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God was dealing with a nation. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, God is dealing with individuals. In the Old Covenant, they had a king. In the New Covenant, we are kings. In the Old Covenant, they had a priesthood. Under the New Covenant, we are the priesthood. In the Old Covenant, they had a temple that they could go to and bring sacrifices to and talk to the the priest and and, and bring sacrifices unto God. In the Old Covenant, they had a temple. In the New Covenant, we are the temple. 
You understand the difference? So in the old covenant, they would go to a high priest who would go to be between God and them and would mediate between God and them. But in the new covenant, we can go directly to our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and go directly into the throne of grace and cry not to the father of the nation of Israel, but to our heavenly intimate father. Amen. Cry, Abba, Father. And what Paul is trying to tell these Galatians and what I would say to the Zionists today is this, that the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. That they're, they're all God's people. But this is like an heir who's a child who looks a lot like a servant. And this is like a full-grown heir who doesn't need a priest, who doesn't need a king, who doesn't need a temple, because I am a king, and I am a priest, and I am a temple. And what he's telling them is this, Why? Are you trying to go back to the old covenant when the new covenant is so much better? Amen. Notice it again, Galatians chapter 4, and look at verse 7, and we'll finish up. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 7 is where I get the title for the sermon because it is really is the point that Paul is trying to make, and it is this, wherefore thou art, he's talking to the Galatian believers, no more a servant but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. I know these seven verses, they're just, there's just so much in them. But Lord, I, I pray you'd help us to, to understand it, and I pray you'd help us to learn it, and that it would challenge us, that it would encourage us. And then we would realize the great benefit that we have to be under the new covenant. Not taken away from, from the people under the old. That's when they were born and that's when they lived. And praise God for those that called upon the name of the Lord and were saved. But we don't need to go back. We don't need to be Zionists. We don't need to be Judaizers. We don't need to be part of the Hebrew roots movement. We don't need to be people that are trying to go back to the old covenant when the new covenant is so much better. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to remind you uh, that if you would like to...